And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, business of film. I was overly dramatic there. Why? Because there's somebody in the room with me who's listening to me do this. So I decided to put on my best radio voice. <sighs> How's it going, Mark? Can you hear Mark? Mark's in our office right now. Mark and I are working together. Mark's a good dude. You should meet Mark. But in the off chance you don't meet Mark, you're stuck with me today on Business of Film. Episode number 48. Wow. Closing in on 50. Can't wait. I don't know if I'll make it there, mind you. Uh, but in the event that we don't make it there, it's been fun. Uh, today, this episode, episode number 48, uh, we have with us an entertainment lawyer, longtime friend and business colleague and somebody who I have known for uh, quite a while and have had the opportunity to work with for quite a while, which we get into in the show. So hope you enjoy it. His name is Richard Hannett from the firm of Lewis, Bernberg and Hannett. My name is Jesse Eichmann and as always, you're listening to a Business of Film podcast and this episode is all about financing, co-productions and structuring deals. Enjoy. We'll be back next week. Maybe? No. We'll be back. Bye. I'm going to steal that opening from before. Which was? About you having good levels. Oh. Fair enough. You have good levels. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've always been told I have good levels. <laughs> it's like we did the same joke over again. Um, okay, so, uh, Richard Hannett, can you give our audience a little bit of a uh, little background on who you are and, and what you do? Uh, sure, thanks. I'm... Uh, an entertainment lawyer practicing for 17 plus years. Um, together with that, uh, I do consulting and executive producing and assist people in pretty much all aspects of production work. Uh, our firm, Lewis Bernberg Hannett, is a, basically an all, uh, a broad-based firm encompassing corporate commercial work in the media industry. So we do work with television, feature film, uh, radio, distribution, broadcasters, distributors, etc. Cool. All right. We're done here. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Happy to help. Uh, okay. So the, the, the truth is, uh, Richard, I've known you now for, geez, it's been... 14 years, when I started my career over at Alliance Atlantis, I was sitting in a cubicle. Richard, you were sitting in an office, uh, 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 you know, uh, alongside me uh, or in front of me, and I would always run into your office and ask you questions about whatever co-production we happened to be working on because at the time we were dealing with, I don't know how many co-productions, and it was a really ridiculous time, and, and, and so... Uh, I'm lucky enough to have been in business with you for, uh, I guess, really now 15 years. And, and over that time, we, we've done a ton of deals together. So I know you have a tremendous amount of knowledge for, uh, for structuring deals, for film financing in general. So I want to start with some of the basics just for, for our, our audience. When you look at, it, at, at a deal, when you've got a client that's, uh, that's uh, coming in, what are the first types of things that you try and wrap your head around in terms of the, you know, uh, how a deal is being put together? Uh, first, once you get by the basic, uh, the basic uh, structural points of what rights the, the client has, let's assume you have worldwide rights, so all the underlying rights are secure. Um, you know, the first question of, of, of course, is uh, what's the most accessible financing? Uh, as we work in Canada, if it's a feature film, we're looking at 
the, the, I always say the lowest hanging fruit here is the government financing. I mean, the, the, the easiest and, and most accessible uh, pro, uh, financing are the Canadian tax credits. Um, they're obviously a continuum. You can start with full credits and you can move to production service credits. But you want to structure the project in a way that you maximize your tax credits. That's, you know, basic. Uh, and, and now with all the credits in the United States and the various different states, um, I think it's prudent you would take the same approach in filming um, wherever you need to film. But the basic uh, establishment of what tax credits, etc., you're going to have to access comes down to a production question. You can't separate where you need to shoot from where you're going to access your money. Sometimes you have a choice and you make the choice of where you want to film based on where the best money is, but you can't compromise the film on the basis of the money. So if you don't have a choice and it has to be shot in you know, up north because you need snow, well, then it has to be northern Ontario, etc., or northern Alberta or wherever. Uh, and, and then you work with, with that premise. So, so that's the first thing is to establish... Um, from a production point of view, what choices you have. Um, I guess the same thing would uh, apply to whether you want a co-production partner or whether you need to access another another uh, territory and how you need to do that if that's going to maximize your financing. So let, let's actually talk about that first. Because co-productions are interesting. We had another gentleman on the show uh, recently, and we went through a lot of the same kinds of things that you're talking about now, which is production location, maximizing film incentives, and whether you're based in the United States, the UK, Canada, uh, or, or Australia, or South Africa, wherever you, you happen to be, you generally run into the same issues when it comes to a co-production. And co-production financing is, when it comes to that basic question that I started with, one of the more complicated but yet more accessible forms of financing that's available to, to producers, you know, really anywhere around the world. So if we're talking about the co-productions, as you just kind of started venturing into there, um, they're really, really, really complicated to do. And I don't think people realize the complexity that goes into uh, a co-production. Weird, when you're looking at how to piece a co-production together, what are the types of things that are important for a filmmaker to, to consider? Uh, well, assuming our audience is, 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 is for this is, is North America-wide, um, the, uh, producers in the United States aren't necessarily as concerned with some of the precise treaty rules that we deal with in Canada, but certainly knowing what possible international treaty co-productions there are is helpful to any producer wherever you are, because even an American producer can access uh, treaties and the benefits. Uh, again, really, the benefit of a co-production treaty is you can get the benefits of both national incentives, be it, let's say, Canada and the United Kingdom. It looks, in Canada, like a Canadian film. It looks, in the, in the United Kingdom, like a, a United Kingdom film. But, of course, the, the, the treaty, to be able to qualify in that respect says that you have to have minimum spends in each place. You have to have very precise um, uh, copyright splits based on spends. You, the, the producer fees necessarily follow the, the, the splits. There's all sorts of rules that dictate how your, the shape of the, the, the partnership between the two entities has to come together. And so you are a little bit hamstrung 
with some of the things you want to do and some of the deals made. And often, sometimes people come into me and they say, we've sort of made this deal and we want to do it as a treaty co-production and here's what we have. And unfortunately, sometimes we have to unravel the, the initial deal, you know, the deal on the napkin, so to speak, and go, well, let's look at it a little different, differently. Of course, one of the flexible things you have with, with treaty co-productions is the third-party country, as they say, or the you know, foreign entities, money coming in from any third party, like let's say it's the United States, if it's a Canada-UK co-production, um, can be used any way you want, really. You have a lot of flexibility. Um, we actually can, can do Canada-UK co-productions with projects that originate in the United States and still turn around, produce it, and drive the rights back to the United States through a, a, a distributor or, or an entity that who initially might have thought of themselves as a producer, but we can basically get them everything they want, and also credits necessarily, maybe not producer credits, but EP credits, etc., by, 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 the, by the UK, or rather US entity, playing a slightly different role in the whole production structure. Uh, so, so that's sort of the treaty co-production rules. There's also other ways of, of producing between Canada and the United States. There's co-ventures and, and other certain things that you can get Canadian content um, certification. Maybe not the full tax credit regime, but it's like a co-production between Canada and the United States, which, uh, which often uh, isn't accessed as much as, as, it, as it possibly could be. Uh, from the United States point of view, um, the word co-production is really a more generic term for any partnership between a producer and a broadcaster or two producers. And, um, and again, there's still ways of, of working in that, in that rubric to, to basically maximize the benefits in the United States and any foreign country. In a similar way, you're probably less tied up with the rules as you are with treaties, but again, the benefits are probably not quite as high. Fair enough, fair enough. So uh, the, the the issues around let's just let's just kind of just, just just go back a bit to um, some of the some of the things that trip up producers because I, I think you know a lot of the the, the value and the learning that uh, is available certainly to us on on this podcast on this show is trying to instruct and talk about things that go wrong uh, in these in these deals and things that aren't acceptable to it because because at the end of the day a lot of the contracts a lot of financing that gets put into place that you have to you have to take this paper to a financier or a bank and then the bank's got to get involved and all of a sudden something's not right and you got to go back and you got to unravel these these things you, as you're talking about so the 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 learning if you will from the where do producers make mistakes? Where do these things go wrong? I just, I'd love to get your, your perspective on that. Um, sure. Well, let's look at one case study. I, 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 often, I suspect, again, the people listening to this program are, are going to be people working in the United States and Canada quite often. There is a lot of benefit from um, Americans looking to produce up here. And I can give you a case study of, of a project that did fall apart two weeks before before uh, principal photography, principal photography. Very excited about this, by the way. I love case studies, and I love the idea of a film that fell apart. Not because the film fell apart, because uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing this because I believe there's a, a tremendous amount of value in finding out well, what went wrong. This was interesting. I was brought in much late, later in the game, and unfortunately, one of the uh, I was representing uh, one of the Canadian financiers. Um, 
in any event, the, the, all all through the process, six months before I was brought into it, which I which was about two weeks before it fell apart, when I looked at the whole project and said it can't work this way. The the Canadian financier was funding. He was basically going to act as the Canadian producer, and he was going to put in. Uh, equity financing. There's certain ways of doing that in Canada. Basically, he was going to put on a certain amount of money, but he expected it to qualify for Canadian content and get the full tax credits. This was a movie that was um, basically packaged in the United States. So let me just, but before you go on, let me just set up just some some quick questions here. Feature film. Uh, it was a co-production or not a co-production? Not a co-production. Okay, and, and, and what was the... Uh, the underlying rights were held by who? The uh, uh, the script was written... Ooh, can't remember. I think the, the, the writer... I can't recall whether the writer was a Canadian or not. The director was going to be Canadian. So and it was trying to be set up as a Canadian content production with the underlying rights may have originated in the states. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And so and and okay. Go on. So there was uh, a couple of known uh, Canadian leads um, playing roles, but Canadian leads that were well-known in the American market as well. And also, of course, a few American stars. And this was going to be shot virtually in Toronto. So uh, mill budget was just under $2 million bucks. Uh, it was basically, as I said, packaged by an American agency. So they had the distributor in place uh, for a modest distribution advance. U.S. distributor? Correct. Okay. Um, they had provided, of course, they represented... Uh, all of the talent. So that was how it was able to be packaged. And, and again, all relatively well-known talent. Um, but what happened was, through the process for the six months before, six months before I was I was involved, um, everyone had assumed it was possible to set it up as, as Canadian content, and that was necessary to be able to achieve the amount of tax credits that they all calculated to, to, to finance it. But um, certain American, uh, let's say, participants were promised producer credits. And in the case of Canadian content production, uh, you can't give a non-Canadian a producer credit. You can give them an executive producer credit with, a certain, with certain assurances that they're not in control. And you can give them other credits, but you can't give them a producer credit. And at... The 11th hour, um, certain individuals who had enough vested rights in the project and hadn't signed the appropriate documentation giving those rights to anybody beforehand such that they could dig their heels in and stop the project basically said they're not moving forward without uh, their their producer credits. And uh, and that was it. The, the, the financier said... I'm going to lose $200,000 now, or I'm going to lose $700,000 later and walked from the project. And, and the and financier had actually put in the money? Like, they had already spent money, two hundred grand had already been had gone yeah, out the door they had already They had already financed pre-production to the tune of $200,000. And, and so this was on the verge of actually paying the, uh, paying the, the, um, the actors uh, into escrow, paying right. escrow the, the escrow amounts for, for the actors to lock them down. That's when it all fell apart. And, and so these were basic structural issues that no one had looked at earlier on 
And um, it's too bad because this film would have been, you know, North American, a North American, a well-known North American film. It would have had a theatrical release. And um, well, this brings to mind two pretty critical issues, I, I think. Um, and it, the fact that it's Canadian content is kind of neither here nor there. I think that's just a the, the specific instance of certain rules and certain expectations not being met. But uh, and this would apply equally to whether you're, if you're shooting uh, in the UK or in Australia or you're doing a co-production anywhere. If you don't know the rules, and the rules get very specific and very granular on that kind of level, and you're not communicating or able to communicate those rules specifically with your financiers, these kinds of problems inevitably creep up. And so if you're not working with or relying on people such as yourself or other law firms or knowledgeable producers who have this kind of information that are able to communicate it, inevitably you're going to run into a problem like this. It just sounds to me like this was a really shitty situation where uh, I don't know how the producers got that far without making that kind of communication in the first place. It's kind of ridiculous, really, but but these things happen. Yeah, it was it was more or less completely foreseeable and and and, and unfortunately ended up, ended in a, badly for the film. That, that you know, that's sort of one example. Uh, you know, other examples are you know, people that come into the office and and they've unfortunately left money on the table. Uh, uh, we were both fortunate to work at Alliance Alanis when it was at its heyday. And, and one of the things we were taught, especially as, as business and legal people, uh, was uh, taught, obviously, in a, in a corporate situation, was to maximize profits. But we were also included in the deals. We were, in fact, encouraged to run those deals and to maximize the profits in each case. So you got to un- you, you were, we were fortunate to understand, you know, how to make the choices to maximize profits. And it's a shame sometimes when people come in and uh, um, they, you know, they, they perhaps have a Canadian passport or alternatively they could have shot in one state versus the other, but they didn't understand that there was a better credit there. And they've left a lot of money on the table and they could be struggling with a, with a budget, you know, that, you know, 1.2 million when it really should be 1.5 million, there would be a lot more producer fees at hand and um, and it was based on earlier choices made or commitments made that didn't ultimately benefit the film and actually didn't benefit them financially. And so I guess that's one of the uh, don't burn your bridges early uh, uh, is is I guess the theme the theme in in respect of, of those situations whether you're producing in the United States or whether you're producing in Canada. It sounds obvious, but uh, it's still people uh, still have different ways of trying to approach how to finance a film. Some people uh, believe that you necessarily need to lock in an actor to be able to go to a distributor and then be because the distributor won't be interested without the actor. That's probably true, but it's really difficult to attract a, a named actor without you know, a distributor attached or a director attached uh, because they're not interested. They're not going to read the script. They don't, they, they get hundreds and thousands of scripts necessarily, uh, depending on the, on the actor. So the process of which, what happens first, if you ask me, my short answer is director first. 
you really need to attach the director. Once the director's attached to the script and the project, I think that will attract the actor because the actor will want to work potentially with that director. We've had a lot of success, and, and this all comes down to the, the pieces that go together before, in, insofar as putting together the financing. If, um, if you can attach the director, as I said, that will attract the actor. We've had a lot of success, especially I work obviously in the independent film business for the most part, and, uh, and, and, and actors will work for under their rate uh, if they like the director and if they like the script. You know, that's the only way to attract an A-list actor to a small-budget film. They want, you know, it's something perhaps that offers them a lead role that they didn't have before, that they've never been offered a lead role before, they've always been the second lead. That That's an attractive proposition for them. Uh, or, or alternatively, the setting's different, or they're playing a role that's different from the, you know, they're usually typecast as a funny person, and all of a sudden they get to play a serious person. All of these things are, are, are attractions to get that actor. But ultimately, it's going to be the director, not as much the producer, or the team of the director and the producer that's going to be able to bring them in, in my experience. With that package, you know, then you can necessarily go to a distributor. Then you can go and look at a, a telefilm or financing. You can do, uh, do that with just the director, but I haven't seen it be a successful without a director attached. So let, let's talk about then just the, uh, the, the process of contracting with uh, an actor because a lot of the times you can get an actor on board perhaps in principle, but then you get down to the nitty-gritty of trying to actually make the deal with them and things can get complicated there as well. Now you might be working, uh, you might be taking an actor outside of the jur- their, their jurisdiction uh, taking a U.S. star and bringing them into Canada uh, or to some other country to shoot. You might be working uh, with uh, an actor under Schedule F uh, for SAG. You might be working with an actor under Scale for SAG if you're able to, if you have got those connections. And as you say, you've got an actor that uh, is willing to work on the project because they like the director and the package and the way it's being rounded out. But then you hop on the phone with the agent and you got to actually make the deal and you got to make the deal work. What are the contractual things that a producer should be thinking about beforehand, before they're approaching the talent, that they should be incorporating into their, you know, their 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 mind or their budget as things that they know will come up or things that they should consider in order to, quote-unquote, maybe sweeten the deal for the actor or the agent, because ultimately an actor might say, yeah, I'll do it, but then your agent's going to hop on the phone and you got to negotiate a deal. Sure. Well... Uh... Look, a few things uh, are, are important. First of all, this may sound, again, obvious, but you have to know your bottom line. And, 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 and agents, I think, are receptive to that. We have X amount available. We want him or her. But this is what we have available. This is a budget of $1.5 million. Again, you, you, know, you, you want to outline the advantages uh, of of that uh, of that particular role to to the agent, I mean, arguably, initially, once you're doing the deal, you've potentially al- already had the the actor read the script, so they're already slightly interested or 
pregnant, as they might, as you might say, with the script, because it's it's going to be very. You're, you're, at that point, you're negotiating the deal after they're already interested. Although not necessarily. Sometimes mm-hmm. you may go to the director or the manager, sorry, the, the agent mm-hmm. or the manager, and try and do it. True. But for most yeah. independent leads, agreed. Yeah, there's two. There's two approaches. Yeah, but if you're yeah. but if you're in this situation where you're you know you're bringing in a, an A list or B list yeah. actor yeah. to a small independent film, um, they're going to have to have an interest in it before you're negotiating the deal because they're going to instruct their their, their 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 agent. Yeah, I'm going to do it for you know I'll do it for a hundred thousand dollars versus five hundred thousand dollars. I'll do it for five hundred versus five million or whatever the the difference is. But you have to know from the point of view of your budget, what your maximum is. But one of the tools that I've found most successful is to, if you can negotiate with your financiers, is to offer the, uh, the, uh, the talent, uh, you can call it a production bonus, or I, I, I've often found it helpful, uh, a first-tier recoupment. So uh, in, in the sense that you share the first-tier 50-50 with your financiers and your actor, in essence, they become... Uh, a co-financier so that the actual rate the SAG rate or whatever that you're actually paying out of the production budget and you have to bond or whatever is you know let's just say it's a hundred thousand dollars but they get a hundred thousand dollars on the back end but from the first tier which is you know attractive if if, if you're if you do not have um, international distribution attached at that point and you're you're sincerely looking for uh, an advance, and it's the type of movie that you probably will get an advance if it if it's half decent. Then um, you know that first advance that comes in, the first two hundred thousand dollars of money that comes in, is going to repay that actor. They're going to be made whole. So that's an attractive tool, and, and I've actually been successful in in a number of independent films using that tool as long as. You know, it's reasonably foreseeable that that money will come in if the film gets sold. So what you so what you're suggesting is if the actress quote let's say was two hundred thousand dollars, you pay them a hundred thousand dollars out of the budget. You're going to pay your fringes on that to SAG or actor or whatever union, and then uh, the actor gets a back end participation, uh, which could be any percentage split, but just for simplicity's sake, uh, their their deferred amount of a hundred thousand dollars gets recouped. Uh, 50-50 pari passu with a equity investor if there so happens to be one as the first money comes in they get their other 100 grand back at the same time your investor is recouping their money but it allows you to attract the bigger actor that's correct and even with the institutional financiers the Canadian institutional financiers that's that's been a, a tool that, that they've accepted they appreciate the need for that type of talent, they appreciate the marketability of the film with that talent attached, and, and that that will ultimately be, be render the film more successful for everybody. So that's one of the you know the first and simplest tools really that um, you know you can still add all sorts of you know bells and whistles, you know just, uh, box office bonuses if you hit ten million, all that stuff. Sure, if it's a success, but from an initial point of view, you really have to say. Hey, if we go to TIFF or we go to Sundance, etc., and we get a sale, you will get paid at that particular time. That's you know that's 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 going to be key in having that negotiation. Um, you know, other things. Um, I, I've had sometimes casting agents. If you put the deal in their hands, um, they don't necessarily see the full picture. They don't build in. 
extra time for delays. They don't build in other little things that can necessarily be helpful. Sometimes you want to try and get a credit for overscale against future residuals. Depending on what guilds you're working with, some have buyouts, some don't. Actor has a buyout, SAG doesn't. If you're paying a, a SAG actor a considerable amount over scale, it's helpful to, in the contract, be able to apply that over scale against SAG residuals, which takes away a, 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 a big headache for, for reporting later on, um, if possible. But those are the things you want to get in the deal initially, not necessarily try and negotiate them after the actor's already agreed to the basic terms because it's not going to be successful then. So what you're saying is when you're first making your offer to the actor, incorporate some of these these elements such as uh, guild residuals should be part of the all-inclusive fee, um, back-end bonuses if those exist, put those all out on the table in advance uh, that should be coming from... If it's being made by the casting director, then the producer's got to be in communication with the casting director to properly communicate all these little details or the producer should be communicating them directly assuming the casting director has already gotten interest from the talent yep yep and i've had you know other little things that have been helpful again if your schedule somewhat flexible before you've locked in your schedule i've had lead actors say i'd love to do the film i have two weeks here and two weeks here but i have to be in new york because i'm playing a gig you know in a in, you know, he plays in a rock band or something in the middle. I have to be there. You have to send me there, you know, for that week. You know, can you work around that schedule? You know, it may be worth it for that actor to be able to, 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 to bookend. So those types of things you have to always keep in mind um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're contracting. If, in fact, they're the lead. Obviously, you're not going to do that for everybody. But, but those types of things... If you can maintain a slightly open schedule and work around their potential conflicts, that can be very successful. Cool. All right. So let's just kind of shift gears then a bit and just talk about uh, the the wide world of, uh, of distribution agreements because you've seen your, your fair share of distribution agreements. And the reality is film producers a lot of the time get the short end of the stick when it comes to distribution deals. Not because the deal is necessarily unfair, though it might be, but it's kind of one of those things that he who has the gold makes the rules. Nonetheless, there are always areas that a producer should be looking at in a, in a distribution contract, things that they can push back at or things that they can kind of get more uh, benefit from than perhaps the initial offer from the distributor uh, would imply. Given that, what are the things that producers should look at when they're looking at a distribution contract that's being put in from being put in front of them from a distributor? Uh, first thing, uh, going from the back of the distribution agreement to the front, look at the distrib- the delivery schedule. That's some one of the key things. It sounds boring, but one of the key things that's often overlooked. Uh, you know, in essence, the delivery schedule is a contractual obligation to provide that sort of those materials. If it's an international distributor, you might see all sorts of different versions, etc., that you may not have produced in your budget, and there may be considerable cost attached to delivering what 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 the distributor wants or what you may inadvertently contractually agree to. So look at that first. What are you actually? What do you have to deliver? 
Um, if you don't have it already and you haven't budgeted for it and you don't have the money to make it, well, then put it on the distributor. Again, that's a negotiation, but put it on the distributor to create those, those items. Of course, it's gonna, they're, you know, they're going to be done as a recoupable cost, but, uh, but, but necessarily at least it won't come out of your pocket immediately. It'll come out of your pocket later and, on. And it's worth noting there as well that a lot of the time, not all producers uh, will look at all the deliverable items and understand what the hell everything is because these things can get fairly complicated and that's why you've got post-supervisors. So just uh, maybe a small recommendation from, from my end of the table here would be to contract with uh, or bring on a post-supervisor in advance, somebody who can actually decipher that for you and put a dollar value on everything in that deliverable list. But that's just sort of a side note of something to think about. But, but this is good. This is so, a good idea. So, yeah. uh, so then moving to the, to, the board, to the more prudent business terms, uh, if they're huge established distributors and you know their records, um, then you don't have as much concern as a potentially an unknown distributor. What I often so let's talk about term in, initially. A bigger distributor, if they're going to put up an advance, is going to want a longer term. Fair enough. If they're putting up five hundred thousand dollars, they might want twenty five years. That's not going to be negotiable. But they're putting up five hundred thousand dollars. I'm assuming your millions, you know, your movies in the you know one to two million dollar range. So that's a, that's actually a good advance. If it's a distributor that's not putting up any money and has a relatively unknown track record or is new, etc., I would suggest that one thing you do is look at a shorter term, a much shorter term, or at least sales targets, and you can basically terminate the deal if certain sales targets aren't, aren't reached. Uh, really, there's not much harm to the distributor to agree to that if they, if, they, if they are convinced they're going to be successful with the film. If they know that they can meet some reasonable sales targets, then... That should be something you can get them to agree to. If they still want a long term and they're not offering any sales targets and you have no confidence in them and there's no way to terminate the agreement, I'd be pretty leery about that. Uh, insofar as uh, fees, uh, fees we all know range, but look at the territory. If it's a U.S. distributor and they're charging a, a relatively reasonable fee, then make sure that doesn't include any sub-distributor's fees. Or rather, sorry, does include sub-distributor's fees such that they can't charge any more fees on, on, on those fees. Those are where you get out of hand. If you know the number right from the start, and that includes all the sub-distributors, then um, you, again, have a reasonable understanding of what you're going to see back. If in fact, what's just out of, just out of curiosity, what's a reasonable fee for U.S. distribution or for uh, foreign distribution? If you're to separate those two ideas out, uh, you know, I've I've seen everything from low numbers from fifteen to twenty percent to forty percent, and again, it, it depends considerably on whether they're putting up money or not. If they're not putting up money, you need to expect. You should expect lower fees. If they're putting up money, your fees are going to be up at 40%, and they might even take a back-end interest. Uh, you, if it's an American-based distributor, and you know that they work in the United States, they shouldn't really need to hire a sub-distributor to get it to the broadcasters or, or, or to, the, to, the, to the theaters. Uh, but you probably will expect that they will sub it to a foreign distributor to work in the foreign markets, especially, you know, the Chinas, etc. And so 
you want to avoid duplication of fees as, as much as possible. So that's something to, to keep an eye on. Um, again, back-end interest flows from that. You might as well call it an extra fee. If someone's putting up a lot of money, uh, they're taking a lot of risk. And in that particular case, you'll probably see a back-end corridor uh, being demanded as well. Is that bad or not? Well, it depends on how much money they're putting up. So just just, just to be clear on that, um, if we're just going to walk through just a, a quick example, what you're suggesting there is it's not unreasonable to see in a distribution agreement that a, uh, a fee would be taken off the top, um, some expenses would be taken off the top as well, the recruitment of the distribution events would then come out next, uh, plus maybe versioning costs or uh, third-party royalties or residuals or guild residuals. Uh, can you get a distributor, by the way, to, to, to handle that typically in your experience, to handle guild residuals? Uh, yeah, it's not as common with the Canadian distributors. Uh, the bigger American distributors, etc., are, are a little bit more, com- more comfortable in taking on um, SAG residual obligations. It depends on the on the bigger international deals. There's often a collection account management agreement, and in that particular case, it'll actually carve off a little bit for SAG, and everyone in essence shares that that. Uh, but but some of the uh, the larger distributors will in fact assume guild residuals. You will not see it uh, in in Canada. You probably won't see it in the European distributors. Uh, very often. So it, it depends. And it does get complicated. It's simple. If all your actors, let's say, are actra, not a problem. But if you have a mixture of SAG and actra actors, uh, which we often see it for the you know, you know, U.S.-Canada th- uh, projects, uh, it can get complicated and, and you, you distributors will shy away from taking on that obligation. There'll be exclusions in there. There'll be reps and warranties that all those people are paid. Uh, so sorry, so let me just come back. I, I'm going to jump back around here for just, yep. for just for two Two seconds. So just to finish off that, that example, producers got the distributor taken off their fees, expenses, royalties, residuals, uh, third-party obligations. Then what's left being theoretically the, maybe you they might call it an adjusted gross profit or a net profit, depending on how they define their terms and their agreement. But what's left, you as the producer, will be thinking to yourself, hey, what's left after that comes back to me? And what you're suggesting uh, Richard, is that it's not uncommon for a producer, for a distributor in that situation to take that what's left number and then be a, uh, a party to receiving a percentage of that, uh, that adjusted gross revenue or net profit so that they become an actual participant in the revenue stream of the film before money trickles back to the producer. So that's something that you're suggesting producers would look at as well in these in these agreements. Yep, that that's correct, and and that correlates uh, with the amount of money that they put up as an advance or minimum guarantee, uh, almost in all cases. So it's interesting that you were talking about collection accounts because I think that's also something that you may not think about, or producers may not think about that they need or want. What's your experience with the with whether or not a producer and in what situation should a producer actually have a collection account in place? It's usually not driven by the producer, in my experience. It's driven by the financiers or distributors. Uh, it, the, the more parties that are involved in the financing, uh, generally the demand for a collection account. Uh, if it's just a producer and one distributor, or a producer and one distributor in North America and, let's say, one worldwide, you know, when you have one institutional investor, maybe 
one non-institutional investor. Uh, I see there is there, there is very little need for it. I mean, collection account collection managers take uh, you know they take a, a percentage of the, of, of the revenues, whether it be you know in between let's say two and five percent, uh, and that's a could be an expensive cost. Uh, and there's another complexity with everyone negotiating that account. These the the, the account agreement which. Uh, which are very detailed and which you know will involve a lot of lawyers and a lot of business people and uh, are, are quite complex. So uh, if uh, I would argue if it can be avoided, it should be. I don't know too many producers that on their own would want one, but again, it's usually driven by your financiers because they don't want to see the money go into the producer's bank account first and have to wait and prod the producer for getting their their share or or alternatively they don't want to see the money just go all to the distributor and have to worry about whether or not the distributor uh, will actually <clears throat> pay their share so so that's usually the impetus is, is a third party so coming back around to just any other things that a uh, producer should look at when they're looking at a distribution agreement were there any other points that you wanted to bring up there yeah let's talk about costs quickly sure so yeah. so if for if there's going to be a theatrical release um, sometimes you see cost caps and sometimes cost caps are negotiated uh, and and if but if there's going to be a theatrical release often, uh, there's an incentive, and you actually want the distributor to spend cost. You want them to put up P&A, because if you don't market a film, it's not going to be known, and no one's going to go see it. But if it's straight to video, or straight, you know, or, or, or basically going to be sold to, to broadcasters directly, or licensed uh, more accurately, um, then you can entertain cost caps. And, and obviously, the Certain costs aren't going to be able to be capped, like third-party versioning and, 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 and dubbing and those things. They're always excluded from a cost cap. But it's not untoward to try and negotiate a cost cap in a non-theatrical situation for 10%, etc. One of the other things we, we often see, and which is pretty common, is a market fee or this expense that's taken off the top by distributors which is you know like it's been termed many different things but it's this sort of before you even get to the expenses it's a market expense and it can be significant fifty thousand dollars twenty thousand dollars and it's you know it's a it's sort of a, a, an upfront deduction that they like to take uh, against their market cost of course that's a great way to make money for a distributor you have a catalog of 30 films and you get to deduct the first 20 or $30,000 out of each one, it's going to pay for your, uh, you know, your stand at MIP and CAN and whatever, uh, you know, arguably those stands cost money, but uh, I'm always leery about getting my money's worth out of those market caps. One of the things I have seen successful, if possible, is instead of negotiating it being an upfront cost, if you can, first of all, get rid of the market cap uh, costs, uh, or the market costs, rather, uh, that's great. But if you can't get rid of it and you can't reduce it, to spread it out, to say, okay, but you can only take, uh, you can only deduct that from a corridor, uh, let's say 20 or 30 or 40 or 50% of, of the revenues as it comes in. At least you then spread it out. And it's not, uh, it's not going to basically be upfront, an upfront deduction against 
all of the revenues, and you won't, you'll be pushed even lower. Uh, so what you're saying is they'll take 20% of whatever money comes in, which will go towards their market cap. So 20% goes towards their, say, $50,000 market cap. The other 80% goes towards the recruitment of the producer's uh, adjusted gross receipts. And you just keep on throwing money, that 20% that comes in towards that market cap until you get to 50 and then that stops. Exactly. And, and, and that's, that's, a really good, that's a really good idea. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way that, uh, that uh, you know, Telefilm and, and some of the institutional investors like to have that approached if you can't negotiate it out. Um, again, I'm always uncomfortable with those numbers. I've seen anything from $20,000 to $50,000 to $100,000. I, I can't see how... Uh, a small film's going to cost an extra hundred thousand dollars in in you know market promotional costs, but uh, you know uh, there you go. It, you know that's again one of the negotiations, and I've seen that pop up in almost every agreement now. It's a it's a tool, a new tool to, for distributors to make money. I mean that said, distributors take on a lot of obligation. Um, let's talk quickly about one more thing if we have time. There's a difference between a distributor and an agent and a sales agent and 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 I often see this distinction being blurred a little bit um the way I look at it is a distributor is somebody that you deliver to and then they have the right to enter into agreements on your behalf and they will take on delivery obligations to those third parties a, a sales agent is an entity that will strike the deals on your behalf but not necessarily take on the role of <clears throat> of deliveries and not necessarily have the right to contract on your behalf. And of course there's a producer's rep who acts more or less like a sales agent but you know is really there to just connect you for a limited point in time uh, uh, to other deals. Obviously sales agents because they're not doing the deliveries, etc, the fees are significantly less. But you have to remember if a sales agent is charging 10 or 15 or 20 percent and then you end up he or she ends up hooking you up with a distributor who's then going to charge you another 20 or 30 percent which is the you know the normal distributor fee or more uh, you're going to end up again double counting your fees so be I would it's hard to get around that though no matter like any any typical situation you're going to be working with more than likely a sales agent, and that sales agent is more than likely going to be getting into getting you introduced and doing a deal with a distributor. I, which I, I hear what you're saying. I just don't know if there's any way, like from an industry perspective, it's just something you, you need to keep in mind that it's going to be ten percent or fifteen percent of the sales agent. Then you know it's like almost fifty percent, sixty it could be fifty to sixty percent off the top of the gross amount of money that that comes in before you even get into a situation where you're, you know starting to recoup and that recoupment isn't necessarily going to the producer first which is I mean this this just opens up a completely different you know rant about the state of the industry and how producers make money and why the return to creator is so low or return to producers can can be so low um but I, I, I digress. I'm sorry. You were, you were finishing a thought there. Well, no. I, I think, you, you know, you're right. I mean, you have to approach. You're going into, let's say, you have your, your movie into a festival, into Sundance, and, and you, you know nobody, and, and do you need a sales agent? Uh, or do you need a producer's rep? Uh, you know, arguably, a producer's rep, in my experience, is going to be able to do the same thing a sales agent is going to do. 
they're much more limited in their in their scope of their retainer, and they may be limited to territory. Their fees are going to be considerably less, and they're going to their job is to match you up with distributors. And and and, and uh, you know, a sales agent is a much longer term retainer, usually for a year. It's not necessarily for the purposes of a short of a market or etc. And uh, um, you know, I guess it depends on the film and what potential you know, you know whether you ha- if, if let me back up if you have it in a festival if you've gone to the effort and been successful in getting into a festival I would approach it by way of a sales agent if you have no festivals and you really need to just get your film into the markets um, you're right Jesse you may not have any choice you know it might be more the sales agent that takes it under their wing to even get it to the distributors. And those, at those markets without you having the benefit of being in a, a, a festival. But if you manage to get it into a festival or get some of your own notor- notoriety, you know, a, a, a producer's rep may be a, a slightly more efficient way to go. It's Again, it's what tools do you have at your available and, uh, availability and, and what people are interested in your film enough to, to help you. I think I've got to start doing a longer podcast. I feel like you only start getting into the rhythm of these things <laughs> yeah. about, like, you know, 40, 45 minutes in, it's like, it's, it's like a train. You start building up steam and you're like, all right, now we're getting going here. Now we're getting to the good stuff, but we're over. We're done. <laughs> well, <laughs> happy to, to, to go on about any particular topic in more pre- precision or, or detail whenever you want. So. Well, let our audience know if they want to connect with you, uh, what is the best way for, for them to reach out? Uh, Richard Hannett, our law firm's Lewis Bernberg Hannett. And um, my my business line four one six eight six five nine four one nine. Email Richard H at lbhmedialaw.com. You know, it's funny. Some people would go like, "Yeah, you can just find me on Twitter." <laughs> yeah, I'm not on Twitter. I can't imagine anyone would want to hear what I have to say on Twitter. Yeah, you can start. We'll start. We'll start tweeting out these things once a week. It'll be like you know, law tip of the week or business tip of the week. I suspect we could probably do that. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Richard. It's been a pleasure having you in studio. This was a live session. I am. I'm actually in person here with Richard today, so it's great. Thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure. Cheers.